Well, we are <clears throat> thrilled that you're here today. I want to make sure everybody's got notes. And welcome to uh, Ruth number two. And so if you uh, would turn in your Bibles to the book of Ruth, <coughs> we'll get started on our, on our lesson. When I was a younger girl, <clears throat> my dad was giving me life lessons. And one of the life lessons that was very important to him was that I understood contracts. I don't know why, but it was. So we had this big conversation on several account or several occasions about about how to handle contracts. And one of his lines was, "Don't ever sign your name to something you haven't read." Good advice. So then I trans, you know, moved to, through life and uh, got to the place of buying my my first home. And if you've never experienced that, I'm sure most of you have. You go into the little lady and she hand, starts handing you papers, and they all have little tags on them, and you either initial or sign. And so as I started through the process, I never said a word to the lady. I you know, read the first page, read the second page before I initialed it, read the third page. I read about five pages in, and the lady put her hand over on mine and said, are you intending to read all the pages? And I said, yes, ma'am. My daddy said I'm never supposed to put my name on something unless I, I read it. She goes, we are going to be here about three days. And I said, okay, can you translate? She goes, yes. What you're signing there is, and she gave me the overview. And boy, by my third house, it didn't matter. Whatever, <laughs> sign, whatever. You know? Yep. We, are, we are a society, though, that does not take uh, clear counsel about vows and covenants um, as much as we should. We call them agreements or contracts. Even our, our wedding vows are not vows anymore. They're, they're an opportunity to say, I like you now. Uh, maybe I won't later, but I, but I do like you now. Um, in our Bible, when we come across contracts, agreements, they're called covenants or vows. A couple that you will remember uh, very readily, the first one about Hannah. Hannah wanted, wanted a baby, wanted it desperately bad, First Samuel chapter 1. And in that time period, she prays to the Lord and says, if you would bless us, she's not going to bother me. Remember, Krista, don't panic. Uh, anyway, uh, she was right on cue with the baby part there. Anyway, um, the, the promise was, if you will give me a baby, I will give him back to you, and he'll serve you all the days of his life, as did Samuel, of course. You can remember maybe a, a story about Jephthah. Uh, Jephthah, he was in Judges 11. Unfortunately, this is a bad one. But he made a vow, if God would bless him in their army, they were working on some enemies, if God would bless him and make him win, that the very, the very first thing that came into his council when he came home, he'd offer it to God as a, as a sacrifice. And unfortunately, it was his daughter, his only daughter, who, who came and presented herself. And he followed through on his vow. Vows are important to God. Now, I'm not saying we should all you know, offer our children. That was not the point. The point is that we ought to take vows and, and, and uh, covenants more seriously. When we get into our section today in Ruth, it's, it's going to be a big matter. So let's go to Ruth chapter 1. We stopped last time on, or yeah, stopped on verse 6. We'll start with verse 6. When Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living, set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, uh, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. 
Then she kissed him goodbye, and they wept aloud and said to her, We'll go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, No, return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I am too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters. It is more bitter for for me than for you because the Lord's hand has turned against me. At this they wept aloud again. Then Orpha kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Now, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods go back with her. But Ruth replied, do not urge me to, re- to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and I. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them, and the women exclaimed, Can this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi, she said to him. Call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. So just to refer back to the first six verses, Naomi and her husband, uh, Elimelech, left from Israel and moved into Moab. And in that move, deserted God. Uh, In that move, took the batters into their own hands. When they got there, their two sons married Moabite women, and over time, the dad died, and the both, both the boys died, leaving Naomi just with her two daughters-in-law. At some point, she's deciding, verse 6 says, when Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, she and her daughters-in-law prepared to leave. At some point, she, she is motivated to leave, to leave Moab and return to Israel. The question is, what motivated her? And, and I don't think any of us know for sure. Was she repentant? Did, did she come to a place of, well, we should have stayed with where the Lord had us, trusted in him, leaned in him, expected him to, to make the, whatever the moves were necessary for our family? Was she repentant? I don't know. Was she homesick? Probably. Uh, did she long for things that, that, that made for her sense of security? Her, her home, her friends, her way of life. Was she just plain lonely? Her husband had died, her two boys had died. She's left with two girls who are not like the girls that, that she was or grew up with. We don't know, but we know that she has some resolve. She's, she's committed. Verse 6 says she's prepared to, to return. Verse 7 says they set out on the road. And she's going to give two commands, not suggestions, but commands to those girls. This is very interesting to me. They're not, um, hey, if you want to, why don't you go ahead and return? It is an actual command. She looks at her two daughters-in-laws and gets that tone of voice that maybe your mother-in-law occasionally uses and says, go back. Go back to your mother's home. Notice that she doesn't say, go back to your father's home. 
In that day and age, women did, did not own property. They, they were not the head of houses. So if she was going to send the two girls back to their people, she would have sent them back to her father's house, to their father's house. And, and, and yet, in this, uh, in this text, she says, I'm commanding you to go back to your mother's home. Maybe she's doing the, you're looking at me like a mother, and therefore I'm going to return you to your, your regular mother. Uh, but at, at some point, it's a, it's a command, go return. And then she says, and find rest. Now, what kind of rest do these girls need? Are we talking about they're overworked? No. What she's referring to is a rest as a sense of security. I want you to go back, you go back to your mother's house, and you find that same sense of security that you ought to have in a home. Where you live, there should be a sense of security. It's not going to be with me. I want you to go back where your people are. And then she makes a couple of requests. May the Lord show kindness on you. And that word kindness, we've mentioned it before, is the word hesed. The Hebrew word hesed. And hesed means so many things other than just love. Loving kindness, loyalty, generosity, benevolence. Um, all the characteristics of a loving God are wrapped up in that little word hesed. And she uses it. She wants to make sure that, that these two girls, that God blesses them. May, may God show you kindness. Turn with me to uh, Psalm 136. Psalm 136. Interesting psalm in our in our Bible. It has a refrain. And and it and it dawned on me as I was thinking about this, may the Lord show you kindness. This is this is this is her way of reviewing the the kindness that God has done for her and now what she wants for her daughters-in-law. In fact, interestingly enough, she refers to them as her daughters, not her daughters-in-law. Uh, look at Psalm 136. So give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. And the refrain is, his love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of gods. The refrain, his love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of lords. His love endures forever. To him alone, who alone does great works, his love endures forever. She was, she was in her mind making certain that something like this uh, could be true for, for her daughters-in-law. I want, you to, I want you to recognize the goodness of God that his love endures forever. And then the second thing she says to him is, may the Lord grant you the opportunity to find rest. Again, the, the word rest meaning security. She wants the very best for these two girls. She doesn't want to just dump them. She wants God's very best for them. Now, Naomi kisses them. We're back to, to Ruth. Uh, they're, they're, they're both uh, kissed. And there is a, a time of weeping. It's interesting in the Bible when the Bible suggests that someone cried. There's a difference between crying and weeping. So, so crying is, you know, I don't know, a good movie or something cute that happens or your husband says something lovely or I don't know what, a nice card comes. But weeping is when it comes from, it's a little girl cry. It's the little girl in all of us that comes out at significant moments. And that's what's happening here. They're demonstrating a very deep emotional bond. This is not a casual, this is my mother-in-law. This is a woman who is... Who is uh, spent at least the 10 years as spent pouring into these two girls there is a connection a deep emotional connection between mother-in-law and daughters-in-law and they're expressing at this point and then she comes out in verse number uh, 10 and 11 12 and 13 i want you to return home no no doubts about it i don't care how connected we are to each other 
you need to stay here. You need to go home. And she gives three reasons why, three, three things that they should logically uh, process. Number one is, I don't have any more sons. So if you stay with me thinking that I've got a, another son for you that you could marry, I, I don't have any more. That's it. Um, she's referring to a principle that's found in Deuteronomy chapter 25, and we do need to look at it. We'll look at it several times in this study, but Deuteronomy 25. Deuteronomy 25 and verse number 5 and following. It's the principle that the Bible would call the kinsman redeemer. Kinsman meaning family member. Redeemer meaning someone who would buy something back and and a principle that, that they're supposed to live by. So starting in 25 of Deuteronomy, verse 5, if brothers are living together and one of them dies without a son, his widow must not marry outside the family. Her husband's brother shall take her and marry her and fulfill, fulfill the duty of a brother-in-law to her. The first son she bears shall carry on the name of the dead brother so that his name will not be blotted out from Israel. And, and it goes on and, and clarifies some of that. Let me just stop. The principle is this. Everything is family-oriented in the lives of the Israelites. So if you're married to John and John dies and his brother Jack is, is still living... You marry Jack to stay into the family and the family line. Any children you have with Jack now are, are children that will carry John's name, even though Jack is their, their actual biological dad. So what, what, what I want you to see here is this kinsman-redeemer principle is not a casual thing. That's why she says to him, I, I don't have any more sons. There, there's no one else. There's no more Jacks. There's no more Johns. There's no more uh, uh, Malon and Chilion in this case. Second thing she gives him is that by way of, you know, logic. And she says, um, I'm too old to have a husband and then to have more sons. So if you say, okay, you don't have any sons now, but you could have sons. She's saying, no, take a look. I'm an older woman. I'm, I'm not going to have a husband. I'm not going to have any more sons. And in verse 13, she says, you just plain can't wait. It's not going to work. If you're looking to me to, to have another son so that you can marry him, it's not going to happen. She's, she's giving a very clear answer to their, hey, but we want to stay with you. What's really fascinating to me in the passage is she, she takes a position that the Lord's hand is against her. Uh, look at uh, verse number, let's see. Ba, 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 ba. Yes, verse number 13. Would you wait until they grow up? No. Would you remain unmarried for them? No. No, my daughters, it is more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has turned against me. Now, we had the big conversation in our first lesson last week about the sin that both Naomi and Elimelech did by turning away from God and, and, and taking matters into their own hands. But what she's saying now is, hey, the Lord has been, um, uh, been working in my life and it is, it, is, it is the Lord's might that's come on me. He was displeased. His hand ha has produced in me a not good thing. His hand... The Lord's hand is against me. Now, <clears throat> much of us, we talked about this a little bit last week. We like the New Testament God, not the Old Testament God. We like the loving God that's going to provide everything we want and need good. And we don't like the almighty God that is demonstrated so clearly for us in the Old Testament. What she's saying here is that that God, the God, the Lord, who has a hand, who has a, had a purpose in my life, he has been... A, He's been at work in my, in my life. His hand has dispensed both judgment and punishment. 
and also dispenses love and care and grace. God, God is capable with his, with his hand to dispense grace, but he's also capable with his hand to dispense judgment and, and a lack of mercy. And, and one of the things that comes up in Psalm 32, he says, For day and night your hand was, was heavy on me, my strength was sapped. David's recognizing that God is doing a work in his life by putting his heavy hand on him. So the bottom line is she gets it. She understands. Now, why didn't Naomi want the girls to come back with her? I mean, I, I sat and thought about that. You know, several possibilities here on the human side. One is, you know, maybe they might remind her of her mistakes. You know, if they're there every day, her sons are not there. They've died. Her husband's not there. He's died. They made a mistake. They shouldn't have come to Moab. Here's these two girls. They're living with her. Maybe they just would remind her of everything, she, the judgments that she made that were not good. That's one possibility. On a practical side, how are they going to survive? Instead of one person having to figure out how to live, now she'd have three. Um, it's not like in our society where if you divorce, for example, and, well, okay, i got to go to work full-time, and you go to work full-time and provide as a single parent. In that culture, that didn't happen. Women didn't go out and work in that sense. There wasn't a, there wasn't a plan or a way for her needs and, and now two more mouths to feed. So maybe in a very practical way, she just thought it would be harder for them to survive, to find food. Maybe she was feeling a little shame when she shows back up. She's going to have to suck it up in front of all of her friends that she lived with most of her life. And now she's got the two Moabite girls with her. It's kind of a, a, a permanent sign of, see my mistake, see my mistake, see my mistake. I don't know. Um, maybe she just felt like two more women with her would make it harder for her to slide back into a Jewish culture, a Jewish mindset, a, a Jewish way of living. I, I don't know. And we could, we could sit and argue about it. The thing is, though, she understands that God has been working in her life. The Lord's hand was heavy on me. Whatever her reason for being so clear with these commands to the girls, she's, she's very clear. But in verse 14, we start now the response of the two girls. So the, the Bible says, and at this, they, they wept aloud again, second time. It's kind of like um, <clears throat> when you go out to uh, have dinner with a friend uh, and the check comes. And so maybe you, you I'll, I'll get that. And the other person says, no, I got it. And then they're, they're kind of just, you know, I'll get it. No, 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 I got it. Oh, okay, go ahead. <laughs> you know, it's kind of one of those, oh, I'm so glad you said that. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I think Orpha's kind of in that case. She was doing the crying. She was doing the weeping. She was doing, no, oh, no, I don't want to leave you. But, but come second round, okay, okay, I'm out of here. Um, she kisses her mother-in-law and agrees to return to Moab. She's going to go back to her father's house. She'll probably remarry. Life will go on. But the Bible says that Ruth clung to Naomi. And the word cling there is a very interesting word. It doesn't, it doesn't mean just grab hold of. It's like my mouth is very dry today for some reason. And my tongue is sticking on the, the roof of my mouth. And excellent example here of, of this word. That's what happens when there you know, isn't enough this. Wait a minute. Tongue sticks and then you don't speak well. In this particular case, the word means to cleave, to, to hang on to. It's not a pat, pat, see ya. 
it's a it's a grab, it's a hold, it's a cleave. She's not letting go. And and in the process of physically not letting go, she makes some statements. She makes the statement, your walk or or the way you go, where you're going, is my walk. Then she says, your lodging is my lodging. Where you live, that's where I'm going to live. Your people, they're my people. Your God is my God. Your burial place is going to be my burial place. Now, when we look at that, we go, well, what is this? Let's talk with your walk is my walk. These are not married people. Most of us, when we hear this verse, we hear it often at a wedding. You know, we hear Ruth uh, chapter 1, verse 14 and following, as the husband says to the wife, you know, your, your people are my people, your God are my people, where you go, I'm going, and the wife re- re- repeats it back again. These are not two married people. This is a mother-in-law and a daughter-in-law. It's two women of, of very despairing ages, and everything about them is different. Nothing about Naomi is the same as, as Ruth, and nothing about Ruth is the same as Naomi. But when Naomi is making her point that the girls have got to go home, Ruth wants to make her point, and her point is no. Where you walk, in other words, what you're interested in, what, what, what fascinates you, what makes you tick, what's important to you, those things that are of value to you, they are in value to me. I'm going to walk where you walk. I'm going to have a life that reflects your values. I'm leaving behind all this other stuff, and I'm putting myself in a position to mirror what's important to you. Then she says, my lodging is your lodging. Of course, back then, they didn't have Motel 6s or Marriott's or whatever else you like to stay in. They didn't have any of those. So where you lived and your family line provided a security so you could travel and go somewhere but come back there would always be a place for you to live. She's saying, I'm going where you go. I'm going to go live where you live, which is unheard of. Giving it up, the security uh, and, 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 and the length of time that, that our life has been spent with the Moabites, I'm leaving all that behind, and I'm going to go where you live. She doesn't know what it's like there, unless they've had stories and discussions, which I'm sure they did, but she still doesn't experientially know what it's like. It'd be like you falling in love with, uh, I don't know... Um, a Kenyan uh, uh, tribesman, and 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 you look at him in his all his regalia and his sword, and and you say to him, "Where you go? What's important to you is going to be important to me. What's important to him? Goats. <laughs> okay, goats. I'm in. I'm in the goats. Where where you live? That's a little straw hut. Where you live? I'm going to live." It's, it's, it's kind of like that. The lodging part is a statement of, I'm going to live where you live. Your people are my people. Now, guys, everything was their lineage. The tribe they were born in, the, the family they were born in, the, everything in their lives had to do with those things. We're not like that. A little bit we are because we're Americans, but, but we're, we're, we're such a melting pot. You know, we're American this and American that and American this and American that. I, I you remember a few years ago, I was so excited when I did my, my little heritage te- test and found out that I was 27% Irish. Yes, I really wanted to be Irish. <laughs> what does that mean to my everyday life? Nothing. <laughs> Nothing, right? In that day and age, wait a minute, your people, my people, it's everything. I'm going to learn to talk like them. I'm going to learn to value like them. 
their things are going to be my things. Then she says, your God is my God. The Moabites worshipped false gods. Uh, Kimish was one of their names. And, and they were way off. She's been raised in that. Suddenly goes into Naomi's home. Must have been influenced in some ways about Yahweh. But now she's openly saying, I'm leaving all of that behind. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to worship totally and solely your God. That is a huge commitment. And then lastly, she says it's forever. I, I'm, I'm doing this forever because she says, my burial place will be by yours. Ask yourself a question. How many commitments in our world are like that? It used to be that marriage was. But even that isn't anymore. We sign prenups so we can get out of the your people are my people thing or your stuff is my stuff. This much of your stuff is my stuff, but this much isn't. We don't have that kind of intensity that, that this young woman would say to her mother-in-law, hey, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to buy in my heart all of your interests. I'm going to focus on them. I'm going to live where you live. I'm going to adapt to the culture you come from. Your God is going to be my God. And, and it's, you know, I've decided on, on a forever basis. This covenant that was established here shows up in another place that you'll find familiar in 1 Samuel, David and Jonathan. And in that, in that incredible story, there is a commitment. Now it's to men. Our world has twisted that somewhat and suggested that there was some sort of a romantic element there. There certainly was not. This is just two men doing what these two women are doing. The, the commitment by Jonathan to David and vice versa was a commitment on the basis of Almighty God and love and, and commitment to them to be with them, to have friendships of that kind. Our culture doesn't know much about that. We have lots of surface friendships and very few of these kinds of friendships. I'm going to talk about that in a minute. Let me go on with the story. So Naomi and Ruth, they return to Bethlehem. When they get back, remember Bethlehem means house of bread. So they're coming back to a, a place that has not had the famine, or at least at this point does not have the famine, I should say it that way. And when they show up, the Bible says that the, the people had a stir. Really what he means is there's a murmuring that goes, you know, the first guy that saw her starts the, the telephone chain. Naomi's back, Naomi's back, Naomi's back. She's got a girl with her. I don't know who it is. Naomi's back. That's what happened. And it was a... It, it grew. The, the word that's used there is like a roar, a buzz. It's building. It's building. Oh, my goodness. Look at this. Who is she? And Naomi wants to make a statement just when she arrives. And her statement is, don't call me Naomi. That word means pleasant. I am not pleasant. It has not been pleasant. I, I want a new name. I want to be called Mara. And Mara meaning bitter. And her rationale, the reason she gives for that is that, that oh, the Almighty God has made me bitter, he's returned me empty, he's afflicted me, and he's brought disaster on my life. And she uses two words for God in that passage. On the one hand, she uses Shaddai or El Shaddai. We sing about that song um, a, a lot. El Shaddai meaning maybe the all-sufficient one, or sometimes we'd, the, the God who is enough uh, is El Shaddai. Or another translation of that is the God of the mountains, meaning the provision comes from the mountains. 
In this particular case, it probably just means almighty God. This is the real deal. And she says, he has made me bitter. And then she shifts and uses the Hebrew uh, covenantial name for God, Yahweh, the personal name. Yahweh has returned me empty. Then the next thing she says, Yahweh has afflicted me. Then she shifts back to the, the Almighty One. He's brought disaster on my life. And notice that she says, I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. I, she didn't see my husband. Remember we had a discussion about, well, I think you asked the question, what about, you know, was she agreeing with her husband? She's, she's making a clear statement here. I went away full. I did. And the Lord has brought me back empty. There was a, there was a, you know, it's not we went away full. I went away full. The Lord brought me back empty. Now that, that demands a moment to talk about God's sovereignty. Does God actually bring people empty? Does he afflict them? Does he bring disaster? Does he make bitterness in our lives? And if you try to say no, you're wrong. The answer is yes, he does. Well, now we don't like that. Sometimes we like to say, well, the Lord allowed that to happen. Somehow we're, get, we're getting him off the hook. It's not really him that's doing it. It's he's just allowing it. Uh, I have one of my, I have a book called my Nugget Book, and sometimes I write little nuggets in that, that I get out of God's Word. And there's a little section in there that I entitled, Tough Stuff from Sovereign God. Just listen to some of these. Uh, Rehoboam chose to make it harder on the people. This turn of events was from the Lord. Another place, I have created the destroyer to work havoc among the people. That's God talking, by the way. In Exodus 7, when he's talking about Pharaoh, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. Why didn't the guy just let him go? Because God hardened his heart. In Isaiah, he talks about um, making us wander and hardening our hearts so that we don't revere him. In 1 Kings, it says the Lord put a lying spirit in the mouths of all of his prophets. Um, in uh, 2 Kings, the Lord sent the Babylonians to destroy Judah. Again, uh, the Lord put a lying spirit in the mouth of prophets. In uh, Job, he consoled him over all the trouble the Lord had brought upon him. And in Daniel chapter 9, it says the Lord did not hesitate to bring this disaster on you. Now that's the active hand of God providing some judgment in the life of, of his kids. We don't like to think about that. But that is an important element to his characteristics. He is sovereign. He is going to do what he wants to do. And he chooses sometimes to bring hardship into the life of his followers. Now there's a myriad of reasons why he might do that. Ultimately for our good. If we would submit and return to him ultimately for our good. But at his hand, there is both uh, blessing and, 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 and hardship. What has to happen is when the bottom falls out in our lives and hardship occurs, it's a good time for a quick self-evaluation. It's not the only reason that hardship may have occurred, but it's a good reason to check on it. Hey, Lord, is this, is this due to some decisions I've made or something I've done? Is there something I should start or something I should stop? I'm open. I'm listening. I want to know. And if he convicts us of something, we repent of it and then we move on. It's not the only reason that bad stuff happens, but it might be one of the reasons. The sovereignty of God is to be considered, not ignored. 
We live in a culture that wants to ignore it. We only want a good, fluffy, happy, Santa Claus-y kind of God. And the truth of the matter is, he holds us accountable. And that's a good place for some self-evaluation to begin. It, it may be, it's not always, but it may be that when we encounter those difficulties, we ought to, we ought to stop and, and have a little a moment with ourselves. And then the story kind of reaches an apex, if you will, in the last verse of chapter 1, when it says, the two of them are going to arrive in Moab at the start of the barley harvest. Now, barley was the very first crop that was planted in this cycle of the Jewish lives, the agricultural lives. Barley was the first thing that was planted. Therefore, barley was the first thing that would have an harvest. And I just think it's interesting that having just discussed at the hand of God, there was, there was judgment, he turns right around and says, and when they arrived, it was the time of the barley harvest. Here comes the blessing. Judgment, here comes the blessing. So that's the story of chapter one. What's the so what? What's to be applied? Well, the first thing is this business of self-evaluation. You know, I, I, think, I think Naomi was shuffling her feet when she showed back up in her little town of Bethlehem. I think she was, she was moving her feet fast. You know how when kids get cornered, they stand there and move their feet back and forth? I don't know, they do. At least they used to in my office. Um, you know, figuring out how to handle the next sentence or whatever. But, but Naomi tries to avoid dealing with, that, with the shame and the, and, and the sense of her sin, and she does it a couple of different ways. The first one is she wants to separate herself from it. She doesn't, she doesn't want to be attached to it. And how does she do it? Change your name. Ah, oh, don't call me, don't call me Naomi anymore. Call, call me, call me bitter. She wants to, she wants another name. When you and I are dealing with something that's uncomfortable and we're not really happy with it, we like to get a little space between us and it. Whether that space is literal, we move somewhere else, or we stop going to that group, or we aren't a part of it, we stop stop participating in this. Some way we want to separate ourselves. Second thing she does, it, well, act, actually it has to do with changing her name, the, the, the isolation from her social group. She, these, uh, these people that are calling out, hey, Naomi's bound, you know, whatever. She immediately says, no, I'm Myra. I, I can't have anything to do with you. I'm bitter. God's really done a, a number on me. I, I, can't, I can't show up for tea on Tuesdays like we used to. Can't do that. No, can't. And then lastly, she turns the whole thing. It wasn't because I sinned, but it was the heavy hand of God on us. She doesn't want to go, we made a mistake. I mean, when she showed up at the well of the little town that they were in, which is where they would go when they uh, arrived at a new town, when she showed up at the well, she didn't say, hey, can I have a minute to tell you my testimony? You know Elimelech and I, I, so many years ago, made a decision to move to Moab. Boy, that was a dumb decision. We should have reminded ourselves of God's um, care on our lives and, and leaned in to the fact that he was going to be there for us. We should have stayed here with you and trusted him, and we didn't. Uh, I, and we moved to Moab, and God's hand of judgment was on us because of it. And I, I'm here today repenting. Part of my coming back is a, is a sign of a, I'm giving up my brilliant ideas, and I'm going to lean into God. She didn't do that. You know, 
she, she turns it on. Well, you know, the Lord, he... <laughs> In our case, it probably wouldn't be the Lord we'd blame as much as our husbands or our children or the lady next door or whatever, somebody. When difficulties arise, we need to, to own whatever part is ours. Now, maybe all of this is not on Naomi. I, I get that. But some of it is. Whatever is her part in the deal, she needs to own it. We don't have to own uh, the sin of our entire family or our husband and wife relationship or three friends who you know got involved in blah, blah, blah. We own our part. We, we own whatever it is. And we, we make a self-evaluation. We lean into the Lord. We seek his face with an open, repentant heart. First John 1 John 1.9 says, If we will confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. If we confess, the word confess means say the same thing about it God does. So if you're involved in lying, when you come to the Lord, you don't go, well, it was just a little white lie. I, you know, it, it, it turned out better for them. No, you say, I told a lie. I lied. It was wrong. I'm not going to lie anymore. You're saying the same thing about the sin. What, what happens with self-examination is a repentant heart. You get to the place where you own your stuff. I, I haven't heard Naomi own her stuff. She's sliding back into to Israel. Now, maybe she is, and maybe we just don't have the details of it, but, but I think that would have been an important part for the writer to make sure we knew. Instead, she's just kind of working the deal. And, and I can relate to that. I mean, it's a lot harder to own our stuff than it is to, to worm around. They're blaming on someone, blaming on an issue. You don't know. It was a really hard week for me. It was a a tough week. Those parents were just all over us at school, and it was a difficult week. And, you know, if I lost my temper, I'm really sorry. But, you know, it's not my fault. That's not repentance. Repentance is not according to what every uh, other person is doing, but it's what I own on me. Now, maybe it's not all me, and in this case, I'm certain it's not all her, but whatever her portion is, she should have owned it. Second thing I want you to see, and this is so important in this passage, is this business about seeking relationships that have the potential to create deep emotional bonds. We're living in a world that is, that is cold and heartless and casual, and we're filling those needs in our lives with artificial stuff instead of allowing the Lord to bring the kinds of bonds of people that will, will, both, will allow us to serve the Lord better with more passion and, and to have gladness in our, in our lives. We don't have those kinds of relationships. We're surface people. We're, hi, how you doing? Um, and, and one of the things that, that I have been thinking about for months out of this passage is those phrases, your walk is my walk. Wow. Um, you know, where, where you lodge, I lodge. Where, where you go, I go. Your God's my God. Those, those phrases are an incredible indicator of a, of a kind of relationship that is not found very much in our world. I did a little reading yesterday on some psychology guys and you know, talking about what I was calling deep friendships. How many of those should we have for, for, for good health, you know, for a, a life of, of satisfaction, a life of joy? And everywhere I read said something about between three and five. 
So you think about that, between three and five. If you have three people that you could look to them in their, in their eyes and say to them, where you walk, I'm going to walk. What, what interests you, it's going to be what interests me. What you care about, I'm going to care about. If you have three people where you can say, where you live, I'm going to live. We're all moving to Idaho, we're all moving to Idaho. <laughs> you, have, you have three people where you can say, your people, that which honors you, the, the cultural things that are distinct about your people group, that's going to be, be what is distinct in my life. Your God, the God that you worship, I'm going to worship him with the same passion, and I'm going to do it till the end. We're going to be buried near each other. If you have one that meets that qualification, that is an incredible gift. If you have two, oh my gosh. How do we get them? Do we just look around the room today and go, well, Suzanne's a really nice lady. I like her. She cooks real good. No one would ever say that. She, I've got another one up here. Oh. Sorry, that one too. Sorry. That's the one you want for the cooking. Especially the bacon. Is that, is that, is that the, your walk is my walk, your lodging is my lodging, your people are my people, your God's my God, we're going to be buried together? Or in the facsimile of? No. Well, we, we, we have this great relationship with this family, and we go on vacations together, and it's wonderful. The kids get together, and it's great. Okay. Kids are going to grow up by, by, you know, 15 years from now. The couple is going to be as tight as they are today. What would it take to make sure that that's true? What kind of a friend meets these qualifications, openly looks at you and says, I want to be one of those? It takes effort, and it takes time. You have to invest time in friendships. You don't get that kind of commitment uh, off of, you know, three times a year you have a cup of coffee. It doesn't work that way. This is the person that, that you have out there just kind of touching. When Brianna was little, she's not a hugger. She's not a, an affectionate hugger kind of person. But what cracked me up was if we were standing somewhere like, like Disneyland, if I tried to hold her hand, oh, that was not happening. No way, Jose. But if I stood there, after a few seconds, I would feel this little hand punching me somewhere. She, it's like, like she was in water just to make sure where the wall was, you know. Okay, it's right there. Okay, good. I'm good. And she'd stand there. And then we'd walk off somewhere and she'd poke again. Okay, there, she's still there. Which is a little poke poke her entire life. She's still like that. We were in Quebec. We were walking around, and she poked me. I want to show you this over here, and I laughed at myself. It's you know, she's thirty-three years old, and she's still poking me. That's just a. Are you there? Are you there? These kinds of friendships take a. Are you there? A phone call, a text, a, a, a sharing of a good thing, the sharing of the bad thing, the praying of the good times, the praying when the, the, the times are not so good. It takes energy. Friendships take energy. I love my cave. Leave me alone in my cave. But the Lord knows that I would not be a full and happy person if I had my way and lived in a cave. I need some other things. And he dropped my friend Barb into my lap in a very unusual set of circumstances. And we've been best friends for 52 years now. In fact, we bought uh, 
plots over here uh, to be buried uh, uh, not too far from each other uh, not too long ago. And when we went to buy them, the guy was dying laughing. I thought it was so funny because we were making such cracks about you know who wanted to be where and why and whatever. If God drops one of those in your lap, you are, you are blessed. But it takes time. It takes energy. It takes creativity. You have to act like this is important. There has to be a little exchange, a little fun, a little gift here, a little, I, I know this about you. This is really important to you. And I'm, I'm going to make sure it happens for you. You also have to listen to the person. Listen and remember. Um... This new necklace I have on right here is from a person that that is going to be one of these, and it and uh, he and his wife are are definitely that in my life. But what happened was we had a conversation months ago about hiding God's word in your heart, and uh, he heard it, and we I talked about. I don't memorize enough and I want to and would he help me and I would help him and blah, blah, blah. We had a really good conversation about it. Months go by, months go by. He sees somewhere, I don't know where he saw it, this necklace and on this little chip is the entire Bible embedded. And he bought this for me and gave it to me last weekend so that I could have God's word right over my heart. His wife says, save it for her birthday, save it for her birthday. No, 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 I want her to have it now. He listened and he remembered something that was significant. You don't think I'm going to treasure this? You know I am. If you listen and you remember, you're developing that kind of friendship. And you communicate like mad in as many clever and and creative ways as you can think of it. Look, guys, we need Ruth in our life. We need people to look at us and to say, where you go... I'm going with you. I don't care. You lose a kid. Your husband walks out. You get cancer. I'm holding your hand. I'm in the room when you go. Who do you want in the room when you go? I guarantee you it's not those people you have coffee with three times a, a, a year. It will take an investment. It will take energy and time. God will have to identify it. A little spotlight. Ooh, here's one. Here's one. And when he does, I'm just suggesting to you that, that you would allow that deep and lasting impact to be, to be on your life. I put a blank on your notes. And I put the blank there because I, I want you to think about somebody's name. Where you, so-and-so, go, I'm going to walk. Where you lodge, I'm going to lodge. Your people are my people. Your God is my God. In your burial place, I'm going to be there to the end. That kind of deep investment is what Ruth is saying to Naomi. Make sure you go find a couple. It's not too light. Let's pray. Lord, we're all pretty quiet because we know that at the soul, at the core of our soul, that this is important stuff. We definitely need these people in our lives. But we are busy. And we have families, and we have activities, and we have jobs, and we have other interests, and we have ministries. And all of that is good. But without some deep relationships, sometimes those become fairly surfacey. So I pray this week that you would 
you would make it possible for us to identify in our own lives one or two people who have these kinds of commitments and us back to them and help us to grow old together. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.